Numbers 15. Numbers 15. And speaking of praying for people and uh, thanking the Lord for that, came in here to church and we had a card that was sent to the church. It says, Dear Harvest Fellowship, thank you for your prayers and concerns during my recent illness. I greatly appreciate all who checked in with me to see how I was feeling and continued praying for me. Thank you for the lovely musical jewelry box. Amazing Grace is one of my favorite songs. God is good all the time. Your friend in Christ, Kay Shively. Kay have been battling some very serious sickness for a while. Thank the Lord she is doing better. And amen to that. A couple quick reminders here. Uh, Once again, numbers 15 here tonight. Prayer call Sunday, 3 o'clock. If you'd like to get involved with that, that is a wonderful blessing. It's a great time for us just to come together spiritually, lift up prayer requests, give everything over to the Lord. gives you a great spiritual focus. As we've said out here, I believe every week we have to isolate physically. We don't have to isolate spiritually. There are small group studies going on, obviously digital or via phone. If you want to get involved in one of those men, men's studies, contact me. I'll get you the information. If you want to get involved in ladies studies, let me know too, and I can hook you up with the gals there that are in charge of that. If you have any pressing needs, please do let us know. We want to be able to help out in any way whatsoever. Be it a physical need, where you need food, supplies, whatever, let us know. We can have some stuff dropped off to you. And maybe it's spiritual here. As this goes on, week after week, we want to be able to get a Bible in your hand if you don't want it. We want to get, if you don't have one, we want to get a devotional in your hand if you don't have one. We want to encourage you spiritually in whatever way we can. Please let us know that way we can come represent Christ. As we've said out here a lot, we want to be practical, obviously, in the steps we're taking. We want to be prayerful in the steps we're taking. We also want to be purposeful. Redeem the time, folks. Redeem the time. This is such a strange thing. If anybody would have came to me two months ago and said that basically church would be shutting down the physical church, that'd be unbelievable. But yet at the same time, this season is bringing new avenues of fruit, new opportunities of fruit, and we really are rejoicing in that. So keep that in prayer. This is a strange season, but yet at the same time, it's producing a fruit that maybe we're not used to. Allow yourself to take this time and be in the Word, be in prayer, be purposeful. What a great opportunity and blessing that is. What a great opportunity and blessing that is. Numbers 15, everybody. Numbers 15. I think I say it every week as well, too. What a blessing the worship is. I just absolutely am just so blessed to come in, never know what it's going to be, and just be able to sit and be blessed by that. And to think that you got Marv over there, and you got John and Kathy over in Hamler there, just coming together like that. And recordings and how Marv brings that together to God be the glory. Um, I think it was really neat, too, how they must have contacted each other and color-coded that they would all wear black. That must have been a pretty cool thing, too. It's really weird to see John and Kathy in black. Just normally don't see that. Numbers 15. Numbers 15, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for that time of worship. And I just that last chorus refrain keeps going in my mind. I love that. Just that hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Lord, let us remember you're good. Just at the, at the bottom of Kay's card, you're good. Help us to remember that, Lord, in all ways. Let your word be taught. Let your Holy Spirit just cut to the heart. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. And let this be a blessed time to get into your word in your name. Amen. We took a break from our study in Numbers last week, and we did our excellent Wednesday service, so we're back into the book of Numbers here. Numbers 15 is really a unique chapter, and it's a kind of in a strange location. Chapters 11 through 14 have been narrative. 
We've had rebellion. We've had judgment. We've had lack of faith. We have the lowest point maybe possibly in Israel's history up to this point. They don't have enough faith to go into the promised land. Judgment is coming. They just had a failed invasion. And here now in Numbers 15, God says, hey, I'm going to give you a chapter of rules. That's a really strange place to put this chapter. You would think after this chapter of rebellion, judgment, lack of faith, etc., that there would be something different following. But God says, no, I'm going to give you this set of rules here at this point. And I stop and I think, why do we need more rules? When the nation of Israel just reached their lowest point, we need more rules? Yeah, but I want you to see the key words, the key words in this chapter. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are to inhabit it, which I'm going to give you. Did you catch the word there? Verse 2, When. When you have come into the land. Jump ahead to verse 18, same chapter. Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you. Take a look at verse 19. Then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land, that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. This is actually a chapter of encouragement. Guys, you're going to make it in there. You're going to make it. When you get into the land, verse 2. Verse 18, when you come into the land. Verse 19, when you eat the bread of the land, you will make it into the land. It's actually a chapter of encouragement. It's not a chapter of rules. It's a chapter of God saying, you're going to be able to do this. Romans 8, 37. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even when it looks like we're at the absolute bottom failure, we're more than a conqueror in Christ. I remember growing up as a kid, and Dad may be watching this at home. Um, I was out chopping, and I believe I was chopping uh, sorghum, if I remember correctly. And I, we had the uh, 70-30, Alice Chalmers 70-30, and I was doing that. And I remember Dad came out to the field to check and see how I was doing, so I kind of turned the tractor around to go see him. And I turned so tight that the PTO shaft of the chopper kind of started rubbing up against the tire. And my dad started running at me and yelling at me to stop and stop. And I was just utterly crushed, utterly crushed. And I did what any young, young man would do at that time. I just broke down in, in tears. And I remember my dad, you know, who growing up as a kid in some ways was very firm about certain things like that. I remember him once he told me, you cannot do that very strongly, very firmly. And I was broken. He then just out of the blue said, hey, what's the score of the game? Because we only had the AM radio station. I was listening to WJR 7030. So I was listening to um, Detroit Tigers. And all of a sudden, it's like the score of the game. He, he did such an amazing job of, okay, yep, you were wrong. Yep, you almost screwed the whole thing up. Brought it back, though. What's the score of the game? And brought it back to where it was supposed to be. That kind of idea, okay, now get back in that tractor and keep going. I see a little bit of that here in Numbers 15. You guys really messed up in Numbers 13 and 14. I mean, you you really, really messed up. But in Numbers 15, when you get into the land, because you're going to make it into the land, because God says you will. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. I love what it says in Joshua 21.45. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. God says you're going into land, you're going to get into the land. So as we read through this, as we read through this chapter, I like how one commentator said it, this chapter is weaving hope in the heart as they wait. Weaving hope in the heart as they wait. They have to wait to get into the land. 
But there's still hope because he's saying, here's the expectation that you're going to make it in there and get in there. So what does this chapter have to do with when it comes to sacrifices? Well, what you're going to see here is this. There's going to be sacrifices they're talking about. Uh, Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you have come into the land, you're into habit, which I'm giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or in your appointed feast to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil, and one-fourth of a hen of wine. As a drink offering, you shall prepare with burnt burnt offering of the sacrifice for each lamb. So he kind of comes out here and says, hey, when you offer up your lambs, you're going to also do this. You're going to have one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour, one-fourth of a hen of oil, and verse 5, one-fourth of a hen of wine. Then if you look in verse 6, he's now going to talk about the ram. And the ram obviously gets more. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, one-third of a hen of oil, and then it's one-third of a hen of wine, verse 7. And then he gets to the bull, verse 8, as you do the bull. All of a sudden, now you're going to have three-tenths, verse 9, of an ephah of fine flour with a half a hen of oil. And you should offer then a half a hen of wine as an offering made of, by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, or for each lamb or young goat. Now you may sit there and say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Hens of oil, ephops, etc. So let me break it down for you here real quick. This is where it's kind of nice sometimes to have another translation to go along with it. New Living Translation does a very nice job of giving some measurements that we can kind of relate to a little bit. So for with the lamb offering, you would offer up two quarts of flour, you would offer up one quart of oil and one quart of wine. Then when you got to the ram, it was four quarts of flour, one third of a gallon of oil, and one third of a gallon of wine. Then when you got up to the bowl, you have six quarts of flour and two quarts of oil and two quarts of wine. So with these sacrifices, that's what it's supposed to be doing. Now, I had to really kind of hold back here because I love Old Testament law. I love the sacrifices, and it would be great to get into this, but that's not the point of tonight's teaching, so I didn't want to hijack the teaching. There are five main sacrifices, though, in the Old Testament. You have the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Three of those offerings are voluntary, burnt, grain, peace. Two of them are mandatory, sin, and trespasses. Now, why? Why are we doing flour? Why are we doing oil? And why are we doing wine in the midst of these sacrifices? Let's talk about that for a second there. First thing you see is this. Think about this. You're offering up a meat. You're offering up flour. You're offering up oil. And you're offering up wine. One commentator called it a spiritual feast. It's this idea of a relationship. It's this idea of fellowship with God. Think that through. When you're offering up a sacrifice in the Old Testament, it is offering up relationship. It's offering up fellowship with God. We don't have this nowadays because we have what Christ did on the cross. And so therefore the door has been open. But back then, this is how they had their fellowship with God. That's kind of had the idea there a little bit. You see in the Old Testament, especially in that culture, a meal represented such a oneness. If you remember correctly, we talked a few weeks ago about in Exodus 24 when they went up the mountain They went up there and they had a picnic with the Lord up on the mountain, Exodus 24. Because it showed a oneness, a fellowship, a relationship. You see a little bit of a hint of this in the New Testament. You see this idea of Jesus always eating with people. You see the communion meal. But think of also what it says in Revelation 3.20. That behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door and let me in, I will come in and dine with him. Revelation 3.20, I will come in and dine with him. It shows that relationship of having that conversation, that oneness, that meal, that fellowship. If you've ever been with anybody generally of a different culture, 
not so much here in America, but in other cultures, you see such an importance on food and fellowship, especially in a Middle Eastern culture. We don't have that as much today, but you see the picture of this. So you see the wine, you see the oil, you see the flour, you see the meat, you see the spiritual feast that is supposed to show this picture of that. Number two, it's a sacrifice. Now, now think this through for a second. A burnt offering, let's just use that example of a burnt offering there in verse 3. A burnt offering, it's totally consumed except for the skin of the animal. Because it's supposed to represent a total sacrifice of giving over to the Lord. This is a free will offering. You are not required to do a burnt offering. You would only do it on your own choice. It's one of the three voluntary ones. If you're going to go offer up a burnt offering, you're giving up a lot. You're giving up an animal. You're giving up flour that you've worked for. You just don't go to the store and buy it. You're giving up oil that has been collected and pressed. You're giving up wine. It really represents the sacrifice part of it. And with some of these sacrifices, are all a little bit different. Some of it, the wine is just poured out. God, I love you so much, I'm just dumping out the wine. Because I'm not looking for anything in return. I just want you. And I can't get it back. You know, I got my cup of water right here. If I dump up my water, it ain't coming back. So it shows a sacrifice and it shows a relationship. God desires a relationship with us. Even though Israel is at its evil low point here of no faith, no obedience and rebellion. All of a sudden in the middle of Numbers 15, God says, I want to remind you that I still want to have a spiritual feast with you. So when you see the sacrifices, understand it represents relationship and also represents sins being covered. But you see the spiritual meal happening there. And it's a really neat picture of the lamb, of the ram, and of the bull. And this is all added to them to what they already went through in Leviticus. God is giving them more information at this time. And remember the New Testament example of that as well too. Jesus once again, behold I stand at the door and knock. He wants to come in and have a meal with us. So let's move on here a little bit. Verse 12. According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do with everyone according to the number. All who are native born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you, whoever is among you throughout your generations, and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for you, the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout. Your generations as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you, and for the stranger who dwells with you. Now that's a lot of verses to basically make this point. The rules are equal. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, it's the same rules. So we see here, in these offerings, God's desire to have a relationship, a oneness, a meal with Israel. And now you see in 12 through 16, God's desire to have a relationship with everybody he's opening this up to anybody so stranger or jew it's the same rules for you and you kind of get a little bit of a foretaste here that if the gentiles remember a gentile is anybody who's not jewish and the gentiles that were so looked down upon the jews looked at as dogs some rabbis even taught the gentiles were only created to be the fuel that fires hell god is saying they can do the same thing you're doing That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. It's really a foretaste of us Gentiles coming into the body of Christ, which we're going to get to here in a little bit. Now, once again, this hasn't changed at all. There's one way to do it. You guys know the verse, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a one-way street to heaven. It's him and him alone. You can't get lost on a one-way street. You're going one way. 
Can't get on the wrong rally there. So, Jesus also hinted at this. John 10. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Boy, what a neat picture of us Gentiles coming into the relationship with Christ. Other sheep, that's us. I have, which are not of this fold. That's us. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that is the one body of Christ, Jew and Gentile together, which the New Testament goes into detail about. But you see the little hints of that here in the Old Testament, that God desires a relationship with all. Verse 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering of the threshing floor, so you shall offer it up. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. Now this gets even, I think, a little stranger. If you're just reading through this. And many of you are probably doing the whole read through the Bible in a year. And maybe you're up to some of these passages. And you're reading Numbers 15. You're like, I, what in the world? All of a sudden we're talking about wine and oil and offerings. And now dough. Carry this same thought. Verses 1 through 11 shows the relationship God desires to have with us. The spiritual feast. Verses 12 through 16 shows that this is open to everybody. Jew and Gentile. And now you get to 17 couple points here in 17. First off, it's a good reminder. 19. Then it will be when you eat of the bread of the land. You're going to come into the land. You eat, eat the bread of the land. Remember God's faithfulness. And set aside a bit of that dough. What size of dough? One commentator said it's up to you. How generous do you want to be? That you're going to set aside one of these doughs, make a cake. You'll probably present it to the priest. And it shows your thankfulness. It shows your faithfulness. To say, I shouldn't say your faithfulness. It shows God's faithfulness that you're thankful for. Now, Paul seems to hint a little bit about this in Romans 11. That this represents the Jews a little bit and the Gentiles. If you remember in Paul's great points in 9, 10, and 11 of Romans. He brings up this great point about how the Gentiles are coming in. And you got this picture of this olive tree. And these wild branches are grafted into us. And that olive tree represents Israel. But we get to come in to be part of the body of Christ through Jesus Christ as well. But he's got this verse in Romans eleven sixteen. Romans eleven sixteen. I'm going to read it out of the NIV because it reads, I think, a little better. It says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Seems like Paul is making a little bit of a connection here. If part of the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. Is this maybe a reference to this example right here that we have? If it does, it carries a very nice thought to what we talked about earlier, about how it represents the Gentiles as well coming in. You see this beautiful picture coming. Now you see this idea being heave. A lot of heave offering. Verse 19, heave offering. Verse 20, heave offering. This idea of verse 21, heave offering. There are two offerings there where it talks about heave and wave. Some people look at them as one and the same. It looks like they're a little bit different. It looks like the heave offering is you would take it and you would lift it up. and kind of heaving it up. The wave offering, it kind of looks like you would take it and go side to side with it. A lot of times with the wave offering, you see people's hands coming together and kind of showing this united. But this heave offering, what you would do is you would take this dough, you would take part of it, and you shall make a cake out of it. Verse 20, once again, it doesn't say how much. It's kind of up to you. And then you would take it, you would offer it up to God. Probably taking it to the temple. Probably taking it to the priest and giving it there to them. And it represents, once again, your thankfulness to God's faithfulness. 
What a neat picture this is. So, in verses 1 through 21, it sounds like a lot of rules, and it's really not a lot of rules. What it is, is God saying, when you come into the land, meaning you're going to make it into the land, even though you just had a horrible chapters 13 and 14, and it shows God's desire to still want to have a relationship with them, and it shows God's faithfulness and our thankfulness to it. What a neat picture that is. Now, normally, if we were out here at church at this time, there'd be other people, and this is where I'd probably stop and ask if anybody has any questions or anything like that. Just a reminder, if you have any questions, you can go ahead and uh, ask them via Facebook. Uh, Pastor Renee is kind of moderating that, then he'll contact Elias, and Elias will let me know, and we can go from there as well. So, kind of continuing on now, it changes a little bit here. Because we're going to get into the subject of sin. Remember, when you're dealing with sacrifices, you're dealing with the sacrifice of sin. So he's going to talk about two types of sin now to finish this up this chapter. One is an unintentional sin, and the other is a presumptuous sin. Let's talk about it. 22. If you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be, if it is unintentionally committed, without the knowledge of the congregation, that the whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and shall be forgiven them, for it was unintentional. Intentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them, because all the people did it unintentionally. And if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall bring a female goat in his first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally. When he sins unintentionally before the Lord to make atonement for him, it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally. From him who is native born among the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwells among them. Alright, let's break this down here real quick. Number one, you see the same rules again. You see it being said in verse 29. It's one law, one idea there. There's only one way to get to heaven, that's through Jesus Christ. There's one set of rules. So let's keep that same theme going there. Now we're talking about unintentional sins. That's pretty straightforward understanding. Unintentional. I didn't, I didn't mean to do it. I tell you, I'm really guilty of this. I have this tendency of, of really justifying and rationalizing in my mind. My intention was not to cause harm. My intention was not to be that firm. My intention was not to be harsh. And so therefore, if my words came across as harsh, then obviously I'm wrong. But yet, that wasn't my intention. I read these 22 through 29, it's very convicting to me because multiple times in this chapter, if you please note verse 24, he calls it sin. Verse 25, he calls it sin. Verse 26, excuse me, verse 27, he calls it sin. Verse 28, he calls it sin. Verse 29, he calls it sin. Even though it was unintentional, it's still sin. Now, we have to let that sink in. We may say things like, well, I, I didn't mean to hurt you. I didn't mean to upset you. Unintentional sin is still sin. Sin with good intentions is still sin. Let me say that again. Unintentional sin is still sin. Sin with good intentions is still sin. A great example of this is 2 Samuel 6. You remember correctly, they're moving the ark. And you have Uzzah, the priest, and the ark starts to stumble a little bit. So Uzzah reaches out to keep the ark from falling. And as he touches the ark, he dies. His intentions were good. His intentions were to keep the ark from falling. 
he still dies. Why? Because unintentional sin is still sin. We have to remember that. Now, you may stop and say, well, that doesn't very sound fair. Well, wait a second. If I know it's wrong and it comes to my light that it's wrong, then I need to realize that I was wrong. So I said those words and I didn't mean for them to be harsh. You received them as harsh. Then I need to stop and say, well, then maybe I really need to pray about how I'm coming across. You know, I didn't mean to upset you, but I did upset you. Then maybe I really need to stop and pray about that. Now you can sit here and say, well, maybe they need to not be so upset. Maybe they need to have a little thicker skin. They may need to do that. But for right here, right now, if I came across the wrong way, then it is still sin. And that's a really deep thought because we live in a society today where we're always passing the buck of I didn't mean to and that's not what I meant and that I wasn't my intention. So, yeah, but the Bible says, yeah, but when you find out you were wrong about it, you need to be repentant of it. And that unintentional sin is still sin that has to be dealt with. Now, we go even to even a deeper one though. Verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously whether he is native born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord and he shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and he has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. That idea of he's done anything presumptuously, that literally means the idea of high-handed. Like you're putting your hand up to God saying, I don't care what you say or think. That presumptuous sin, that's a dangerous place to be. Let's build on that a little bit. Can you go with me to Psalm 19? Psalm 19. Let's read a little bit of Psalm 19 and we're going to come back and then discuss what presumptuous sin looks like. What is high-handed sin? Unintentional sin is a little more straightforward. Presumptuous sin is a little bit different. Psalm 19 gives us a little bit of background to that. Psalm 19, let's start in verse 12. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me that I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. There it is. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Now, if if David is praying here to keep me from presumptuous sins, that means that I have the ability to sin presumptuously. I have the ability just to flat out say I want to jump right into sin. Now, verse 12 There's errors. Twelve, there's secret faults. But it builds to presumptuous sins. Now, let's talk about what presumptuous sins are. Give credit where credit's due. If you've ever heard me teach on presumptuous sins before, you know I love how David Guzik presents presumptuous sins. He says, presumptuous sins. Sins done in a proud and knowing way. Things that make sins presumptuous. When we know better. When friends have warned us. When God himself has warned us. When we have warned others against the same sins. When we plan and relish our sin. That's presumptuous. It's planned. It's relished. I've warned others. I've been warned. God's warned me. Friends have warned me. I know better and I'm still jumping right into it. That's the danger of those presumptuous sins. High-handed sins. Now, look at also the building though of secret faults Excuse me, errors to secret faults to presumptuous sins. This is from David Guzik as well too. It says, The description of errors and secret faults and presumptuous sins remind us that sin has a progression. Here, follow along with this. It goes from passing temptation to chosen thought. He says that's an error. It goes from chosen thought 
to object of meditation. Now I'm thinking about it. It goes from object of meditation to wished for fulfillment. Now I'm not only thinking about it, now I'm daydreaming about it. It goes from wished for fulfillment to planned action. Secret faults, he says. It goes from planned action to opportunity sought. Now I want to do it. I'm looking for a way to do it. It goes from opportunity sought to a performed act. It goes from action to repeated action. It goes from repeated action to delight, he says, presumptuous sins. It goes from delight to new and various ways. You've seen that a lot. I've seen that a lot. Where you're just not content anymore with that simple sin, using that a bit sarcastically. Now it has to be more. Sin just keeps getting darker and darker and darker. It's never going to be enough. It goes from new and various ways to a habit. It goes from habit to idolatry, demanding to be served. It goes from idolatry to sacrifice. It goes from sacrifice to slavery. And if you've ever read Romans 6, it says that when we sin, we're a slave to those sins. So now you can see, hopefully, a little bit of the difference between unintentional sin to versus presumptuous sin. Now back to Numbers 15. To give an example of this, it gives us a great example of what presumptuous sin looks like. Look at verse 32. Now when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, this man surely... Man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. Can you go with me real quick please to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. As you're going to Exodus 31, I just want to remind you. Exodus 35 says this. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you. A Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Exodus 31. This seems a little harsh. The guy was just out there picking up sticks. But it's very interesting in the context of the Bible that the story comes right after talking about presumptuous sins. High-handed. Now... We can make a couple assumptions here that this person had been part of the congregation, the camp of Israel for a while. I doubt that this was a person that just kind of followed them and started up and didn't know about the Sabbath. By this time here, we're talking a year and a half that they've been out, maybe even longer. We don't know for sure. He knew better. And he still went out and did it. On the Sabbath. Everybody's home in their tent. Everybody's just taking the day off. It's a Sabbath rest. And this guy is out purposely picking up sticks. That's the presumptuous sin part of it. Now, the Sabbath is supposed to be a blessing. One commentator called the rule of the Sabbath plain and positive. Plain meaning this. It's not confusing. Don't work. Don't work. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Don't work. That's pretty plain. And it's positive. This is good for you. The Bible teaches repeatedly that the idea of the Sabbath is for our rest. Our time. Now, we can get into this here a little bit, but it really doesn't matter at this point because this is not the point of the teaching. Romans 14, Colossians chapter 2 makes it clear to us. Romans 14, 5, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. We don't have to worry about the idea of a Sabbath today. Of the Ten Commandments, nine are repeated in the New Testament to keep falling. The only one not repeated is honor the Sabbath. There is a Sabbath, and I believe everybody should have a Sabbath. But for everybody's Sabbath, it's different. Obviously, for me, the Sabbath doesn't work. Because on Sundays, I'm teaching, I'm working. And please remember, the Sabbath is sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. So therefore, if you ever run into somebody who talks about no work on Sunday, that's not the Sabbath. The understanding is you should have a day off. I do have a Sabbath rest. I, I usually shut my phone off Thursday evening, and I take Friday as a family day. 
I work six days and I then take a, a Sabbath on Friday. It's a real blessing. It is something that is very plain. Need to take a, a break, spend time with the family. And it's very positive. It's good. It's good to have that refreshing. And I personally believe the Sabbath should not be something of just I do whatever I want to do. I really try on a Sabbath rest to say, Lord, I want to spend more time with you. Not because I have to, but because I want to. I want to be refreshed in you. I want to be refreshed. It's supposed to be a blessing. Now, why is this so important? Why did God say to do it? Once again, it was to bless us with the day off. He set the example. But take a look at this. Exodus 31, verse 12, please. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. See, it was a sign. The Sabbath is a symbol. It's a picture of creation. Six days, then God rested. It's a picture of God's ordinances. It's a picture of God's rules. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's it's, it's something that God set up. And so for this person to go out presumptuously, high-handedly, to go against God, when God says it's a sign, God doesn't like it. When he sets up a plan, a sign, a symbolism that is then broken. This man purposely seemed to go out and do this. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath. Therefore, it is holy to you. This is something holy set apart. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Forever does any work on it. That person shall be cut off from among his people. This is completely clear. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day... But the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. In six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Oh, I like being refreshed. And we made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai. He gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. It's an important rule that God set up and ordained. It was supposed to be a blessing. It was supposed to be refreshing. And this man presumptuously went out and did it. So I love the wisdom of this. Verse 34, they put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. It says the man must be put to death. But please note how he's supposed to be put to death. Verse 35, all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. Not Moses as the leader, not Aaron as the head of the priesthood. The congregation, the camp is responsible to do this. Now, I run into this a lot as a pastor. People will come up to me and say, Pastor, you know, so-and-so is doing something. And I say, I didn't know that. And they'll say, you need to go take care of it. And it's almost like I'm the hired hit man. Go take care of it. I see in verse 35 that there is a body of Christ responsibility. Now, some of you at home are saying, amen, let's bring back stoning. No, you're not understanding what this is saying. We all have a spiritual stake in each other. I tell people all the time, if someone comes to your mind and says, hey, James, how's so-and-so? I haven't seen him for a while. You know that one of my responses will probably be, hey, why don't you reach out and contact them? And I've had people over the years tell me, oh, that's fine. I just wondered how they were. And I'm thinking, no, the Holy Spirit put that person's name on your heart. Go minister to them. Men minister to those men. Women minister to those women. We all have a spiritual stake in each other. We are the body of Christ. And that's what makes this season difficult. Because the reality is, it's really easy to realize, hey, Sunday mornings. Man, I just got to wake up at like 9.50, 9 roll out of bed, keep my pajamas on, go to the couch, be half awake. And I'm at church, quote unquote. Wednesday evenings, man, this is great. Get home from work. I can have my slippers on. I can have picture and picture on my TV and I got Wheel of Fortune and 
Alex Trebek going on on the side? And it's really easy to get say, this is, this is nice. And I tell you, it is a blessed season. Enjoy that. But the concept of church is really the physical interaction in the body of Christ. The concept of church is the idea that we see who's here and who's not here. And we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our heart to say, Lord, they're on my heart and I care for them. I'm going to write them. I'm going to call them. I'm going to text them. I'm going to check in with them because I care. See, so often we have created this system where, well, that's just the the pastor's job. And what I see here, no, it's the congregation's job to spiritually care as well for the body of Christ. You know, if my left arm decides not to work, that's going to affect my right arm and everything else in my body. My parts of my body just can't shut down. And if it does, that's dysfunctional. And that means there's a problem. So therefore, when I see part of the body of Christ disappear and do that whole solo island Christian thing, because there is no solo island Christian thing. There is none of this idea of, I just worship at home by myself. No, we're called to be part of the body of Christ. And I see the congregation coming here. And in this case, they're coming in judgment, but they're also coming out of spiritual concern for the rest that we're supposed to honor the Sabbath. Which takes us to our last point, 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. To put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it. And remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. See, 39, there is a, there's part of me. There's part of me, I just want to sin. I mean, that's just the reality of it. I, I want to sin. The scripture tells me that's where my heart wants to go. And it's an ongoing battle until the day I die. Through 40, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So the purpose of the tassels is to do verse 40, remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Now you may say, well, this is strange. Why is this in there? Because they just had a guy stoned to death for not remembering to follow the rules. So God is saying here, remember these rules. I'm going to remind you. And you're going to have a visible reminder on, the, on your clothes that you wear, these blue tassels. Why blue? Well, the covering of the ark. If you remember correctly, we were talking about the ark of the covenant. When they put the covering over it, it was blue. If you remember the tabernacle, the tabernacle had blue curtains. And so this idea, if you also remember the woman with the issue of blood, that she wanted to go up and just touch Jesus' garment. It was probably referring to these tassels. That a good Jewish man would be wearing these tassels as a reminder. A reminder to, to follow and obey. We need reminders set up to remind us. I, I, if I find a good quote, I'll print it off and it's on my bathroom mirror. It's beside my bed. It's in my car. If I find a scripture, I'll print it off. I need those reminders. Dawn has scriptures around our light switches at home, uh, across our door frames. If you look in Deuteronomy 6, it's talking about put scriptures up. Let it be a reminder to us. Put a sticky note where you're going to see it. Write it on your bathroom mirror. Let it be a reminder to you, to verse 40, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Put it on your kid's bathroom window. Put it anywhere to remind you. Why? Because go back to 39. The harlotry of my heart and my eyes. I want to sin. And God forgive me for that. And sometimes I sin unintentionally and sometimes I sin presumptuously. And I'm thankful that I have a God that forgives. I'm thankful that I have Jesus that looks at the woman caught in adultery and says, Go and sin no more. 
Ah, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, like anything in the Bible, we can take something good and we can twist it. I just want to throw this out there real quick. It sure seems like the Pharisees took this verse and they ran with it. Matthew 23, 5. Talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad. That's the boxes of scriptures they had on their head and on their wrist. And they enlarge the borders of their garments. It seems like the Pharisees took this passage and then they made them so big to bring attention to themselves. And when they enlarge the borders of their garments in Matthew 23, this seems to be what Jesus is referring to. So you took something and you ran with it there. So, to kind of finish this up, it's a very unique chapter in its location because it kind of sounds like it's just thrown in there. But really, it's a great reminder of God says, listen, you guys messed up, but I'm still faithful to you. And when you get into the land, because you will get into the land, you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ. And because God says, I promised I'll fulfill it. And he says, I want to have a spiritual feast with you. I want to have fellowship with you. That's what the sacrifices represent. It's open to anybody, stranger, foreign-born, or Jew right there. You will sin. And sometimes your sin is unintentional. Still sin. And we need to remember that. Well, I didn't mean it. I know, but check your heart. Lord, show me that even those things that I didn't mean for it, it's still sin. And I need to stop and say, okay, Lord, I want to be such an example of you that I need to be open to that. And that's why the Bible says sometimes that we're supposed to spend time in prayer saying, Lord, reveal those sins that may be sins that I don't even realize. And then you see the presumptuous and the danger of the high-handedness of it. The high-handedness of it. And then lastly, the reminder where God says, I want to remind you. And the tassels are a picture of that and what a neat picture that is. All right, Elias, do we have any questions then or anything? We do have questions. what be cooked could the cake be cooked and would it be presented at the temple it doesn't go into a lot of detail about that from what i've read that yes the cake would probably be cooked that's why it's called a cake there in verse 20 because it'd probably do some cooking on it and the general understanding is that it would be given probably to a priest and presented at the temple that is the general understanding of it it's a very unique rule given there without a lot of detail there it looks like it's more based on your own generosity but the understanding would be is that since it's called a cake it would be cooked and probably then taken to the tabernacle at that time to present it to the priests then karen sweeper what if someone didn't have any more animals left to sacrifice what's that what if what if someone didn't have any more animals left to sacrifice what happens someone didn't have any more animals left to sacrifice if you go back and read in leviticus a lot of the sacrifices that were required they also had a grain flour offering so therefore if you could not offer up an animal you could go just do a grain flour offering of it and also if you remember correctly for example with uh, mary and joseph they went and just offered some birds for a lot of these sacrifices depending on what you could do you could actually go and offer all the way down to just a bird because they didn't want to keep anybody from doing it there so they had options available for those that would not be able to bring a bull or a ram that you could go go be able to do that as well too good question who asked that one Lies? karen schwieber very good all righty i think that's everything there so good questions 
All right, hey, what a blessing there. So if you want to check out those sacrifices, I encourage you to go read Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, all the way up to 6 and 7. Good stuff in there. Great symbolism as well. Great symbolism as well. Um, Hey, don't forget prayer call Sunday at 3 o'clock. We'll be live streaming uh, Sunday at 10. And we're going to be in Psalm 23 on Sunday. So the very famous Psalm 23, we'll be breaking that down on Sunday. Hey, continue to keep Judy in prayer, looking at a possible procedure tomorrow. Um, Keep Danny in prayer up there in Michigan. Keep him in prayer as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Eva Amador, why didn't they stone Jesus for breaking the Sabbath? Why didn't they what? Stone Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. Why didn't they stone Jesus for breaking the Sabbath? Yes. Well, I would say, was that Eva you said? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what I would say to that is, I don't know if I would say that Jesus ever broke the Sabbath. If you go and study out the gospel accounts, they looked at healing somebody as breaking the Sabbath. If you go back and read the law, it was not wrong to do any of that. They had taken their rules on the Sabbath, and they had expounded them past what the Bible said. And that was part of the frustration that Jesus had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees at the time. They thought it was wrong for Jesus to heal somebody. The Bible never said it was wrong. And if you do also look in the New Testament, there was times that the Bible says they did want to pick up stones to go stone Jesus, but it wasn't his time. And so therefore it wasn't. They did want to stone him for doing those things, and they were angry and upset at him for breaking the Sabbath. But it was their interpretation of him breaking the Sabbath, not actually Jesus breaking the Sabbath himself. He would not have broken the law. In fact, it says in Matthew 5 that he came to fulfill the law, and he did not break any of the law in there as well. But they did, in their own interpretation and opinion of it, think he was going to break the Sabbath, and that's why they did want to do it. Good question there as well. All righty. You know, I was so used to saying it, I was about to say, you know, it's almost 8 o'clock, we need to be done, the kids are going to be coming out, but you know what, there's no kids out here. So, uh, no kids are going to be coming out, but we still will pray and be done then. Lord, we come to you now, thank you. Um, Lord, thank you for being a God that desires to have a relationship with us, even when we're such sinners. I just think of Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. Israel was a mess in that chapter, and you still wanted fellowship with them. Thank you for your God of grace and mercy. Once again, be with Danny. Be with Judy. The God of comfort to be with them all. You're a good God, Lord, and we thank you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week, and God bless, and we'll see you Sunday.